Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. These are the audio versions of the sermons preached each Sunday. I hope you enjoy. Our first scripture reading comes to us from Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 through 31. The Lord created me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of long ago. Ages ago I was set up, at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. When he had not yet made earth and fields, or the world's first bits of soil. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the water might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him, like a master worker, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the human race. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 13, verses 54 through 58. This is when Jesus returns to his hometown of Nazareth after he has begun his ministry with his disciples. Jesus came to his hometown and began to teach the people in their synagogue so that they were astounded and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these deeds of power? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all this? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, prophets are not without honor except in their own country and in their own house. And he did not do many deeds of power there because of their unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So during the summer, we are doing a sermon series called Sans Peril, Without Equal. When someone or something is said to be sans peril, what that means is that they are literally the best in the world, that they are literally in a class above all the rest. And so each week we are taking two people who are the best in their field and we're examining their success. And we're not only looking about how they got to the top, but what are the qualities and characteristics that allowed them to be successful? And from there, we are going to then look at those qualities and characteristics through a biblical lens, and we're going to ask the question, how does God want us to use those qualities and characteristics in our own walk as Christians, and so that we can better build God's kingdom here on earth? During our last sermon, we talked about two of the best athletes to ever walk the face of the earth. Today, we're going to be talking about two of the greatest mathematicians of all time, Albert Einstein and Srivanasa Ramanujan. 
Now, we're going to begin with the better known of these two, Albert Einstein, who was born on March 14, 1879, in the German Empire. He was born into a family of non-observant Ashkenazi Jews, and his father was a salesman, an engineer, who started a company that manufactured electrical equipment that utilized DC, or direct current power. From a young age, Albert Einstein struggled in school because of his dyslexia. He had trouble with reading and writing, but he showed and demonstrated a real prodigious talent for math. At the age of 12, he taught himself algebra and Euclidean geometry. But like so many people who excel at math, he was contemplating math on a much deeper level than what his textbook was utilizing. So when he would learn a concept, he would then apply that to his larger understanding of mathematics. And as an example of this, at the age of 12, Einstein developed his own proof for the Pythagorean theorem. Einstein had a tutor who worked with him on math and his various studies. His name was Max Talmud. And Max Talmud is famous for saying of Einstein that his genius at math was so great that he could hardly keep up with him. Once Einstein had mastered algebra and geometry, he came to the conclusion that all of nature could be described through mathematical structures. And so from there, at the age of 12, he started studying calculus. And by the age of 14, he had mastered integral and differential calculus. And by the age of 15, he had published his first scientific paper entitled On the Investigation of the State of Ether in a Magnetic Field. Now, at the age of 16, he takes the entrance exam so that he can go to the Swiss Federal Polytechnic School, and he goes there to study math and physics. He does this in 1895, and five years later, he ends up graduating, taking the exit exams, and he receives a federal teaching degree. Now, this is important because Einstein wanted to be a teacher. He wanted to have the opportunity to teach math and physics, but he had trouble getting a job. And so while he was searching for teaching positions, he took a job as a patent clerk where he would review patent applications. And after about three years of searching, he decided that he wasn't going to be able to get a job in teaching. So he took a permanent position with the patent office and he decided he would go back to school and he wanted to pursue his PhD in physics. So he goes to the University of Zurich and in 1905 he graduates with his PhD. But in that same year that he gets his PhD, he publishes four papers that will set him on the map as a true scientific mind. So the first paper that he publishes is on the photoelectric effect. The next is on Brownian motion. The third is on special relativity. And the fourth is on the equivalence of mass and energy. These papers made Einstein a real bright shining light in the scientific community. But it would be another 10 years before Einstein's name would be cemented in history as the greatest physicist of all time. In 1915, Einstein published a paper on the theory of general relativity. Now this paper totally upended the scientific community because it controverted Newtonian physics. So Isaac Newton, 
He is the one who created the math of calculus. And it is through calculus that physicists were able to understand and calculate how gravity works and functions in our world. So for 225 years, Newton's equations were the gold standard utilized by physicists in trying to comprehend the force of gravity. But once Einstein published his paper, all of a sudden they started to think of gravity in a completely different way. So essentially what Einstein was saying is that what we experience as gravity, which is that we feel like we are shoved down, forced to the ground, that that feeling is the result of a matter or a body in space and how it bends the fabric of space and time. Now this is very hard for us to comprehend and to understand. So I have taken a short clip from a documentary called Elegant Universe. It was put together by PBS. And it's talking about how Einstein's theory of general relativity contributed to the creation of string theory. So I want you to watch this and this will hopefully explain the idea of how space and time is a fabric and how gravity operates in the universe. Einstein came to think of the three dimensions of space and the single dimension of time as bound together in a single fabric of space-time. It was his hope that by understanding the geometry of this four-dimensional fabric of space-time that he could simply talk about things moving along surfaces in this space-time fabric. Like the surface of a trampoline, this unified fabric is warped and stretched by heavy objects like planets and stars. And it's this warping or curving of space-time that creates what we feel as gravity. A planet like the Earth is kept in orbit not because the Sun reaches out and instantaneously grabs hold of it, as Newton's theory, but simply because it follows curves in the spatial fabric caused by the Sun's presence. Einstein's theory revolutionized the way scientists understood the universe, and it made Einstein a worldwide superstar. Today, Einstein's name is synonymous with prodigious brilliance. But what's so fascinating about Einstein is the way that he approached education. He really felt that formal education was a waste of time. And he is known for this quote, and I love this quote that he says. He says, it is a miracle that curiosity survives formal education. He really believed that education dulls the mind and it prevents true creative thought. And the reason why he felt that to be true is because as you know, when you're in school, oftentimes you are asked to memorize and regurgitate certain facts and figures. And if you can do that, then you have quote unquote learned what you need to know. Now, of course, by doing this, you are simply showing your ability to memorize. You are not showing your ability to come up with true, creative, new, out-of-the-box ideas. And so for him, the way you need to go about doing this is actually by getting away from the educational system. You need to be outside of that. And proof that this can happen, that being outside of the educational system can produce completely novel ways of thinking, is when we look at the second person who we're going to examine today, Srivanasa Ramanujan. 
So Ramanujan is considered to be by many one of the greatest mathematicians to have ever walked the face of the earth. Ramanujan was born in 1887 in Erode, India. And from a very young age, he demonstrated a very impressive talent for math. His father was actually just a clerk at a sari store. They didn't have very much money and he didn't have access to good education like Einstein did where he was able to kind of have books where he could work his way through them. And so because he didn't have access to this, it was very hard for him to have the opportunity to really expand his mathematical ability. But at the age of 13, he somehow got a hold of an advanced trigonometry textbook. And without a teacher, he was able to teach him this entire textbook and it led to him creating some of his first sophisticated theorems. But the moment that would truly change Ramanujan's life is when he would get a hold of a textbook. He was able to check it out from the library and this textbook or this book was entitled A Synopsis of Elementary Results in Pure and Applied Mathematics. Now I think most of us look at the title of that book and our eyes just glaze over. We're like, I would never even open that book. But for him, this was like the fountain of life. He saw this book and it had 5,000 different theorems in it and it unlocked and unleashed that genius that was just waiting dormant inside of him. Now, the headmaster of his school saw that he was very, very talented and he felt that he needed to go to college. And so he fought to get Ramanujan a scholarship to go to the Government Arts College in India. Unfortunately, Ramanujan did not do very well at college because he only cared about studying math. He didn't do any of his other subjects. And so as a result, he failed out of school. And then he ended up transferring to another college to try again, but he couldn't pass the exit exams because again, if it wasn't math, he didn't know how to do it. And so in 1907, he gives up on his education and he decides that he is going to do his own independent study of mathematics. Now this decision to do this would leave him living in abject poverty because he had very little money to get by. And because of this, he was often on the brink of starvation. But over this six year period from 1907 to 1913, this is when he would be his most productive. Even though he had no real background in pure mathematics, he was able to come up with theorems and proofs that nobody had ever come with before. And he came up with them in the areas of mathematical analysis, number theory, infinite series, and continued fractions. He was able to solve during this period of time problems that were thought to be unsolvable. And so, once he kind of has this body of work, he starts sending out some of his proofs and his theorems to different mathematicians who are living in India. And most of them completely dismissed his work because they either thought that he was plagiarizing because this man had no background in pure mathematics, how would he ever come up with this, or they didn't understand what he was doing. That's how far above them he was. And eventually he became frustrated with this and he decided that he was going to look elsewhere. Now at this time, you have to remember that India was a colony of England. And so he started writing to a lot of the English mathematicians and most of them again dismissed him. But in 19 
13, G.H. Hardy, a professor of mathematics at Cambridge University in England, he got a hold of this nine-page document that was sent to him by Ramanujan. And he started looking through the document, and he was very impressed with Ramanujan's work on infinite series and hypergeometric sequences. But when he got to the last page, he got to some of his work on continued fractions. And that is when he realized that this man was true genius because he said of that work that it absolutely completely defeated him, that he couldn't even do it. It was impossible for him to even understand what it was that he was looking at. And I love this quote right here. He says that the theorems were so complex and so intricate that Hardy concluded they must be true because if they were not true, no one would have the imagination to invent them. Truly, truly remarkable, the genius that he had. And so Hardy, he writes to Ramanujan and he convinces him to travel to England and together the two of them collaborate on different theorems and theories in mathematics over the next five years. And Ramanujan, he did have some success. So while he was there, he was the youngest fellow to be inducted into the Royal Society, and he was made a fellow at Trinity College in Cambridge, which both of which are amazing honors. But Ramanujan dealt with a lot of racism. He was an Indian who was coming over to a place that was dominated by essentially white aristocrats. Cambridge was a place that educated the wealthy elite in England. And so he really was operating out of a place where he was not a person who was going to function particularly well in this environment. He was truly a fish out of water. After five years there, he decides that he's going to go back home to see his family in India. And when he leaves, because he wanted to go see his wife, he'd been away from his wife for five years, he goes home and he ends up getting a disease while he's there, and he dies at the young age of 32. During his short lifetime, Ramanujan produced some 3,900 solutions. And what he produced during that time, many of those were completely novel. They had never been produced before, and he, and he created entirely new areas of study as a result of his theorems. And at the time that most of his stuff came out, many mathematicians, they looked at what he did and they felt that actually what he was doing made no sense. Now, it's because he was so far above many of the best mathematicians in the world at that time. He was really far ahead of his time. And today, people have gone back and looked at everything that he's done and they've realized that most of what he has done was proved correct and that even the little scribbles in his margins gave profound insights into number theory. Now, what I find to be so amazing about Ramanujan is that he was also intensely religious. He was a very dedicated Hindu, and he believed that his ability in mathematics, that that could be attributed directly to divine intervention. And he felt that many of the equations that he came up with were the result of them being given to him directly by his family goddess. Now, he is a person who believed that mathematics provided a window into the mind of God. And he is famous for this quote, and I love this quote. I think it's just really beautiful. An equation for me has no meaning unless it expresses a thought of God. 
the idea that an equation of mathematics expresses the thought of God. I just think that is so beautiful. And it leads me to what we do every time in this series, which was we ask the question, what do these two mathematicians have to teach us about being Christian? Well, I want to begin with Ramanujan's insight or idea that mathematics provides insight into the mind of God. So we read earlier from the book of Proverbs, and the chapter that we read is actually a very unique chapter in Proverbs. If you've read the book of Proverbs, you know that it's basically just a bunch of sayings. Sometimes they don't even go together in terms of themes. They can be very much all over the place. But chapter 8 takes a very different path. And so in chapter 8, what we find is that all of a sudden we are hearing from wisdom. Now, wisdom is personified in this particular chapter, and it's talking about the creation of the universe. And what it says is that prior to the creation of the universe, when God's going to create the universe and everything in it, prior to doing that, God created wisdom, that wisdom is the first of God's creation. And because we're reading this chapter from wisdom's perspective, the personification. She has a lot to say about how the universe was created. And I use the pronoun she because wisdom is a feminine noun. So let's see what she has to say about the creation of the universe. When God established the heavens, I was there. When God assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress God's command. When God marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside God like a master worker. Now, the whole point of this particular text is to say that God doesn't just create out of nothing, that God creates through wisdom. Now, this might seem kind of superfluous, like why are we talking about God creating through wisdom? Why does that matter? Well, it matters because wisdom is an intermediary for us as human beings. We as humans, we are finite. We have a beginning, we have an end. And we are talking about a God that is infinite. And it's very hard for us as finite creatures to understand infinity. Just try to think about it. It's very hard for us to do. And so therefore, wisdom acts as an intermediary to help us understand and comprehend God in the world. Wisdom is what allows us to see God's fingerprints in the world around us. And so through the wisdom of something like mathematics and physics, we have a better sense of how the universe functions. And so it's through these disciplines that we come to a better understanding of the world and therefore we get more insight into the mind of God. Now, the truth is, is that most of us, the vast majority of people in the world, are not smart enough to understand either Einstein or Ramanujan's mathematics. There are some people, but many of us lack that ability to comprehend it. I know I certainly do. But that doesn't prevent me from appreciating how they came to their insights about how God operates in the world. And so, to talk about the two of them, why they were successful, a big reason why they had success is because they were self-taught. Both of these men had to learn all of this on their own. They did their studies by themselves. And so as a result, they didn't really have a teacher there telling them this is the right way to do things and this is the wrong way to do things. So as an example of this, at one point, Einstein was asked by a reporter, how did you come up? 
with the theory of general relativity. And the reason why this reporter was asking Einstein this question is because it is not clearly apparent that this would be something that any scientist would ever figure out on their own. Because when you think about the idea that space and time is a fabric and that objects are able to bend that space and time and that's what creates the feeling of gravity, that is something that he came up with strictly out of his imagination. He just thought it up. There was no work that came before it that really would have allowed him to understand that. And so the way that he answered this question of the reporter is he attributed his theory of general relativity to his love of fantasy. So Einstein, he would spend hours every day walking around daydreaming. And in fact, when he moved to Princeton, and Princeton set up the Institute for Advanced Study, which is an institute they, they created literally around him because they wanted the best minds in the world to come to Princeton and study with him. He asked that the people who were creating the Institute for Advanced Study to make a path through the woods that were around the institute. And so he would walk those woods every day on his way to work so that he could think. He wanted to have time to daydream and think about these ideas. And when I was at Princeton, my wife and I, we would walk through the paths in these woods. And it was kind of amazing to think about those were the same paths that Einstein would walk when he was deep in thought. But it wasn't just the fact that Einstein had a very vivid imagination that allowed him to come up with his theory of general relativity. It was also the fact that he was willing to question Isaac Newton. And he was really the first person to ever do this. And you have to realize that everybody up until that point thought that Isaac Newton was 100% correct about his equations when it came to gravity. But because Einstein had not been taught that Isaac Newton's equations were infallible and inerrant, that he was willing to look at those equations and say, maybe there's something wrong here. And as a result, he was willing to realize that there were a lot of logical flaws in the way that Newton was thinking about gravity. And this is because he is a self-taught man. He figured it out on his own, and so he was willing to challenge the status quo, whereas many people who were taught in the traditional manner would have been told, you can't question Isaac Newton. He is the father of all of this. Who are you to even come up and question it? Now, what's interesting is that the very thing that made Einstein be able to come up with his theory of general relativity is the same thing that makes Jesus who he is in the Gospels. So Jesus is a man who never studied the Torah in the traditional manner. He was never schooled in the Talmudic traditions of the rabbis. In fact, like almost every single person who came from the little hamlet of Naz Nazareth, he was unschooled. It is likely that Jesus never even knew how to read, that he was illiterate. And yet, this is a man who, when he returns to Nazareth with his disciples, everybody's looking around at him and saying, where did he get all of this wisdom? How is he able to do these deeds of power? And so it's very much like Ramanujan sending his equations to all of these mathematicians who are thinking that he's plagiarizing. They're like, how can a man who has no education in pure mathematics come up with all of this? Clearly, he must be cheating. And it's similar to how the people of Nazareth are reacting to Jesus, where they're looking at this man who has no education and they're wondering, how can he speak so eloquently about the scriptures? But that's the very thing that allows him to speak so eloquently about the scriptures is the fact that he does have no education.
information in this area. It's very similar to the way that Einstein comes up with his novel theory of, the, of general relativity. Because the fact is, is that it's so novel that you would have to be outside of everything to think of it, and Jesus is the same way. His teachings are truly novel. If you take a look at Jesus' teachings and what came before it, he is drawing on the traditions of the past, but in many ways, they are brand new. His approach to them is completely different than what you see before him. So where did Jesus come up with these ideas? Well, did he just think them up? Well, I think in many ways he did. They came from his imagination. Now, I don't mean to say that he simply just made them up out of nowhere. What I mean to say is that Jesus's imagination is connected to God's wisdom. Because you have to remember in Proverbs, God's wisdom is the most creative force in the universe, is it not? It was there at the creation of the universe. It's what allowed God to create the universe. And so, what I see is that God's wisdom is very much connected to our imaginations. And so in this way, I really believe that when we're talking about Einstein's theory of general relativity or Ramanujan's equations, that they're drawing from the same well as Jesus' teachings in the gospel. And so the point being that when our imagination is connected to God's wisdom, we can come up and it can reveal deep truths to us about the universe. Now, the whole point in me explaining all of this to you is to say that we as Christians, we often look at Christianity and we say, being a Christian means that you know the Bible backwards and forwards. Or being a Christian means that you just believe exactly everything that everybody else believed before you. As if everything you need to know about being Christian is already known, that it's already all there. You just need to understand whatever everybody came before you, and you just need to memorize that, and you're good to go, which is the traditional teaching method. But I think what we see from Jesus and Einstein and Ramanujan is that there's plenty for us to learn. And so rather than looking backwards all the time, we need to dive deep into the depths of our imagination. And we need to do this because when we go into our imaginations, we allow God's wisdom to help us to understand new ways forward that we haven't thought of before, new ways to proceed in this world that can truly give us insight into the mind of God. And that is something that we truly need right now in our world. So we're living in a time and a place in American history, where we're seeing many minorities, people of color, who are protesting the way that they've been treated. And the, real, and the reason why this is happening is because these people are seeing that nothing has changed, that the progress we made has been so small that we keep coming back to the same issues again and again and again. And so if you keep approaching the same problem the same way and you get the same results, what that tells us is that we need to look at it from a completely different vantage point. And I really believe we need to look at the issue of race in this country from a different vantage point. Clearly the way we've been looking at it hasn't been working. And I think it's incumbent upon us us at this point in time, particularly as a predominantly white church, we need to reach deep down and we need to access that wisdom of God so that we can come to a better understanding of what it means to be the church in America, to be able to create paths of understanding between us 
and the communities of color who we interact with so that we can help create God's kingdom. Because what is God's kingdom? God's kingdom is a place where every single person has the ability to live a life. They are started on an equal playing field and we need to help create that for them. And so I really hope that at this time we can start having conversations around that about what we can do. Session has created a committee that will start looking into this. They're gonna provide us with a way forward so that we can have discussions around this issue and they are going to provide us with an opportunity to put our beliefs into action. Now the things that we come up with, they're not gonna be as revolutionary as Einstein's theory of general relativity and they're not gonna be as profound as Ramanujan's equations. But if we continue to delve deep into our imaginations, if we work to access God's wisdom, I truly believe that we can live out Jesus's gospel in a way that truly can make the world a better place for all people. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.